people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called out to him, uh, called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. What is God doing in the world? So if there's one question that it seems every God-believing person should be able to answer, it seems like this one, right? You encounter someone and they say, oh, you say there is a God, well, what's he doing? I wonder, how would you answer that question? Think about it for a second. So most of us here this morning, at least those who are members of the church, have, have openly professed faith in Jesus for your salvation. So you know who God is, you know Christ, you know and confess that he's not a faraway, stagnant God, but he's active in the world that he's made. But active... Doing what? So you know God, but what is he doing? What is God doing in the world? You know, thankfully, there are certain parts of the Bible that give us very clear answers to this very fundamental question. And we come to one of those this morning here in Exodus 19. So by the time we leave this morning, you should have a very clear picture of what it is God is doing in the world. So Exodus 19, it opens a brand new section of the book of Exodus. It leads us into a brand new season of life in the people of Israel, brings us to the place where we'll be with Israel through the end of the book of Exodus, actually. So chapters 1 through 18 that we wrapped up last week, they've given us this narrative of rescue. So the people of God, this nation called Israel in the Old Testament, They had been slaves in Egypt for over 400 years, and now they're not. Now the people of God are free, and according to God's promise, they have a new destination. So we know from Genesis that there is a promised land out there, a land called Canaan, and God is going to bring the people of Israel to that promised land. It'll be a a new, peaceful home for God's people, a land The Bible says like it's flowing with milk and honey. It's this picture of prosperity and all these blessings flowing out from the hand of God to the very people of God. That's what's coming in the people of Israel's future. And so we should come out of Exodus 18 with a bit of a kind of a skip in our step, right? With some real excitement about what's to come for God's people in the promised land. So here in Exodus 19, the people of Israel, it says, are about... Three months removed, or the third new moon. I had to look that up. So we're about three months out or so. Three months removed from Egypt, more than enough time to really cover some ground 
and they come into the promised land? No, not quite. You see that? No, here God's people, they come to a rocky desert land, to a a rocky mountain called Sinai. Look at there in verse 1 again. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they camped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. Before Israel comes to the promised land, they evidently must first come to the promised mountain. So the truth is that although they're not yet in the promised land, Israel has not arrived at this place called Sinai on accident. So actually, we see here, God has very purposefully led them to this very place. We know this because you remember back in Exodus chapter 3? So it was Exodus chapter 3 that God initially showed up to Moses, right, to call him to this task of deliverance that he would be this vital part. And from where did God speak to Moses in Exodus chapter 3? Do you remember? From a burning bush, it was that passage. From a burning bush, where? On the side of a mountain, right? And from there, we saw that he spoke to a very nervous Moses. And he gave Moses a sign, right? He comforted him with a sign. He said he's going to give him a way that he'll know that in the future, everything's fine. Everything's going according to plan. And what was that sign back in Exodus chapter 3? Listen to this. Exodus 3, but Moses said to God, so this is when he's kind of debating God, he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And the Lord said, verse 12, I'll be with you, and this will be a sign for you that I've sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. All right, so what is God's promised sign that he's working all these things out for the good of his people? It's that the newly delivered people of God will make their way to that very mountain where Moses met God previously. So Israel's arrival at the mountain in Sinai is a sign that God's making good on his promise. So this is a sign of God's faithfulness. That's what these first few verses are. And in Exodus 19, three months after they set out from Egypt, here they are. And the point is that God is at work. He's active here. He is doing something. And notice, Moses seems to know what he's doing when he arrives at this mountain, doesn't he? Look at at the end of verse 2. There Israel encamped before the mountain, and Moses went up to God. So all throughout the rest of of Exodus, you'll see Moses gets a bit of a workout. So he's up and down, up and down, up and down. He ascends, and then he descends. He ascends, and then he descends. And he ascends seven times, actually, throughout the book of Exodus. You see, Moses has been here before to this mountain. The people haven't. Moses knows that this is where God's going to meet them because he's seen it happen already. So Moses knows that the Lord has brought them here, and just as he's previously brought Moses, he's done it to reveal himself, to reveal his plans to his people. So Moses knows, he, he trusts that God has good purposes for bringing them here in the desert, for not actually bringing them into the promised land yet. And you know, just as an aside, I don't think we should miss the fact that the Lord doesn't take his people directly into the promised land after delivering them from Egypt. Is the promised land a good gift? 
Of course it is. And does the Lord delay in giving that gift? He does. Why? Well, at least in part, it's to reveal to them a little bit more about the God who's calling them. You know, maybe it's not a stretch to say this has some type of relevance to your own life, right? So maybe you thought that when you signed up for this Christian life to follow Christ, when you left the sins that you loved and began following on this narrower path, maybe you thought it was going to be the straight shot to glory. But in reality, what you're finding is that it doesn't feel like glory. It feels more like a desert. It's, it's harder than it was before. I would just encourage you that according to the Bible, that's very often the case, maybe even expected for you. Very often before leading his people into easy pastures, the Lord leads his people very intentionally into a painful desert. And this is never without purpose. Because it's often here in the desert that the Lord reveals himself, reveals his purposes for his people. It's surely what we have here in Exodus 19. The Lord has brought his people to the desert so that they might learn more of him and his ways. So the question is, what are his ways? What in the world is the Lord doing? I think we see this in verses 4 through 6. That's where we'll camp out for the rest of our time. It's here in these really wonderful verses that the Lord reveals what he's doing. And I think he does it by answering three of the most fundamental questions that we all have in life. Those three questions are this. What has God done for us? What does God require of us? And what does God have planned for us? We'll just take these one at a time. I think this is what he's answering for us. So first, what has God done for us? So Moses ascends the mountain of God, and there the Lord speaks with a message which Moses is then, like a mediator, supposed to take back down to the people. Look there at the end of verse 3. So the Lord God called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel. So what is this message? What's the first thing the Lord wants Moses to tell the people of Israel? Verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you out to myself. I don't know about you, but I find it interesting that the first thing the Lord does when he speaks to his people after the Exodus is to remind them of the Exodus. The first thing he does is remind them and interpret for them exactly what happened in this thing called the Exodus. So imagine that you had just, remember the Exodus? Imagine you had just experienced Exodus like 10 through 18, right? Is there a chance in the world that you forgot what happened? Not a chance, right? No one's seen anything like this, ever. And yet, and yet the Lord is adamant that just 90 days removed from the event, the people not forget that the Exodus is not just a thing that happened. What does he want them to remember? He wants them to remember that it was something done for them. You see that? You didn't just happen upon a river that was split for you. They need to remember that it was done for them. And more importantly, they need to remember who it was that did it for them. He says, you see what he says there? He says, you, you saw with your own eyes what I did. 
what I did. And how does the Lord describe what he did for his people? Don't you love this? The Lord is so just wise and creative. He doesn't just say that he sent the plagues, he opened the sea, he brought them through, he sent the water back over the Egyptians, all of which he did. What does he say? Verse 4, he says, I, I bore my people on eagles' wings. You see that? All throughout the Bible, you see the Lord knows that we'll be helped by having like a metaphor to cling to, right? So he likens himself, in this instance, he likens his ways to that of an eagle. He says, maybe this will be more memorable for you. Think of me like an eagle that brought you out. This is exactly how Israel remembers it later on. At least Moses does when he's remembering well. Deuteronomy 32. So how does Moses remember Yahweh and his works in the Exodus? Deuteronomy 32. The Lord found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them upon its pinions, the Lord alone guided, guided him. No foreign god was with him. We see the same image over and over in the Bible. Isaiah 63, he remembers it the same way. What has God done for Israel? Think of an eagle. What does a mother eagle do for her young? everything. She does everything. She flutters over them in the nest to shield them. She flies underneath them to carry them when they've fallen out. This is the Lord and his people. He is their rescuing eagle. He's the one who can miraculously ascend and carry them out of and over the trouble they're in. They were trapped They couldn't fly. They were grounded. They were powerless. They were hopeless. They could not save themselves. But God, he's their eagle. He bore them on eagles' wings. Why are they not enslaved anymore? Because the Lord has proven who he is. He has flown in, he has swooped down, and he has carried them out. That's how you should remember the Exodus. And where has he taken them? Verse 4. I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Yahweh saves his people and he brings them where? They were in Egypt. They were captive to another Lord. So he went and got them and he brought them out. Not to someone else. Not to some other God. Not to some other religion. He brought them where? To himself. This is amazingly simple, yet hugely impactful. We, we cannot forget this truth. The Lord rescued Israel so that he could be with them. That's why he did it. This is huge. We'll tease this out a little bit more in a few minutes, but we can't miss it. For now, another thing we can't miss is that the Lord's first message to his people on the mountain is not something new. So the Lord's first message is a reminder. The first thing he needs them to know is something they already know. He needs to remind them just what it is that the Lord has done for them. And church, I would just say what we see in the Bible is that in the Lord's eyes, it is very important 
it is very important for his people to have an answer to this question. What has God done for you? This is, this is the boast of the Psalms, isn't it? It's the very reason for praise. I think of Psalm 66. It's just wonderful verses. Psalm 66, verse 5. Come and see what the Lord has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. Verse 16. Come and hear all you who fear God. I will tell you what he has done for my soul. Being able to say what it is God has done for you is the distinguishing mark of a Christian. So let me ask, what has God done for you? Do you have an answer? Do you remember? Listen, before you get to anything else, before we get to what it is that God asks of you, or what he has planned for you, you must know this answer first. What has God done for you? There's a reason that one of the most common commands in the Bible is what? Remember. Remember. We are so prone to forget. We forget, one, that great things have been done for us, and we forget that it's the Lord who did them. What has God done for you? Listen, if you're drawing a blank, that's fine. I got some things that the Lord's done for you. I counted 35 or so. I'll give them to you right now. Don't write them down. Just listen. What has God done for you? God the Father has chosen you. He has predestined you. He has created you. He has sustained you until this very moment. He has loved you. He's covenanted himself to you. He's adopted you. God the Son Jesus Christ, he was born for you. He lived for you. He was tempted just like you are, yet without sin. He was tried. He was declared guilty for you. He died for you on the cross. He took your burden. He took your sin on himself, and he covered it with his own blood. He has given you his righteousness and taken your sin. Jesus has atoned you. He has redeemed you. He rose for you, that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. That is, he made good on the adoption that the Father ordained. He ascended on high. He reigns over you even now. He sent from heaven the Holy Spirit to you. God the Holy Spirit has regenerated you, has taught you truth about God, has enlightened you to the truth, has delivered you from Slavery to Satan, from slavery to sin, has rescued you out of darkness, has brought you into the light of God's kingdom. Christian, God has carried you. God has provided for you. God has calmed your soul. He's lightened your load. He has assured your heart. He has left you an inheritance. He has gone to prepare a place for you to which he will call you very soon. How quick, how quick we are to forget these things, how quick we are to focus on all the things. Think about your own life, your own heart, your own mind. Think about how quick we are to focus on all the things that we perceive the Lord has failed to do for us, right? Which list would you come up with quicker? What has God done for you? What has God failed to do for you? As I contemplated that, I was quicker on the second, sadly. All these things I want the Lord to do for me that he hasn't done yet. How slow we are to remember and acknowledge what we know by faith that he has already done for us.
What has God done for you? You must know the answer to that question. And if you don't, you may not know him. You can. You can. Here's the sum of it. Just like Israel, no less miraculously, the Lord has rescued you to have a relationship with you. That's what he's done. You should know, Christian, you you already possess one of the greatest possible weapons against sin and temptation and discouragement. Do you know that? You know what that weapon is against sin and temptation and discouragement and discontent? It's your memory. It's your memory, your knowledge of what God has done for you. But if you don't know it, you don't have that weapon. Do you remember? If you were writing Psalm 66, what would you say? Come and see what the Lord has done. It's worth asking is your life structured to help you remember what God has done? This, I think, is a huge problem for us. Do you have margin in your life to remember? To remember. Do you set aside time, not not just to live for Jesus, but to remember Jesus? You must not do the latter without the former. You know, this is why we have church gatherings every week, right? And why we encourage you to come every week. We gather to remember because we so often leave and forget. Christian, you you must spend most of your life remembering what God has done for you. This is hugely important because it's only in light of that that you'll actually rightly hear and heed the next question, all right? Two, question two. Think the next ones are shorter. Questions two and three. Number two, what does God require of us? This is the second thing that he shows us here in these verses. Verse four, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore them on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. Having rescued his people out of slavery, what does the Lord now require of them? Obedience. Obedience. All right. So in the next couple of weeks, we'll begin diving into what we call the law given by God to Israel through Moses at this place called Sinai. All right. So the laws of God given at Sinai, they lay out very specifically God's expectations for what Israel's obedience should look like under this covenant that he's making with them. So we've got a whole 10 weeks dedicated to the 10 main commands that the Lord gives there in chapter 20, all right? 10 commandments. That's what we'll hit soon. But before we get there, we've got to see and we've got to understand and rightly and answer rightly one very critical question, and that is this. In God's economy, in God's kingdom, which comes first, the rules or the relationship? Which begets the other? Well, what have we just seen in Exodus 19 already? Did God begin his message at Sinai with relationship or with rules? It's with the relationship, right? And what about over in verse 20, uh, chapter 20? So you can look down there, chapter 20. 
So we get there right at the beginning of the Ten Commandments. And when we get there, what is the foundation upon which all these laws are laid? Look there, chapter 20, verse 1. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Has he already said that? Yes. Does he want them to remember it? Yes. Because he wants us to see that before God lays one single brick of law, what foundation is already there? I am already your God. That's what he says. You know this. I've already said it. I've proven it. I am the one who brought you out of slavery. I am your God. And then, and only then, God moves to detail the ins and outs of what it looks like to belong to him. And here's the point we need to get clear. We are absolutely, we are absolutely required to obey God. So submission, surrender to God, obedience, whatever you want to call it, that has to happen. But we obey, please hear this, we obey out of our acceptance with God, not for it. We obey out of our acceptance with God, not so that we will be accepted with God. We do not become God's children by obeying. We obey because we've been made God's children. And to get that backwards is to miss the gospel, is to live under the law. Our obedience does not cause us to come alive to God. Our coming alive to God brings about our obedience. This is the thing that sets this faith apart from any other faith on offer in the world. So listen, once we get to the Ten Commandments, if you take those good laws and hammer them into your mind and you memorize the Ten Commandments, which would be a good thing to do, you take that and you memorize them, you make it your life discipline to live them out meticulously, you staple them to your bathroom wall, you tape them to the mirror, you tattoo them on your forehead so that you never forget them. And if you do all this for God without it being grounded in what he himself has already done for you, you have not found life. You have found religion. And you will not be saved that way. There's an old poem or hymn attributed, they think it's to John Bunyan, but different people have played with it over the years. He captures this difference in law and grace, in law and gospel. It goes like this, Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly, it gives us wings. The laws of God are good and right and perfect. But they were never designed to produce life in God's people. The laws of God are completely powerless to create life in you. Relationship, faith, must come first. And the good news is that God has done this. I am your God. Can you, how audacious is it? He says that before they, before they obey. 
I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt to myself. The Lord rescues his people to have a relationship with them. He is no Pharaoh who simply desires slaves to do his bidding. The Lord has done the work of incarnation and atonement and redemption to secure himself a family of sons. Any any good old religion can drum up like strict cultish obedience by hanging the love of their God out there like a carrot on a stick, right? Like if you just run, you can can go get the love of God, right? Just keep going, keep going. That is not the gospel. That is not our God. God gives the love up front. He stuffs you full of the carrot and then says, go obey me. Why wouldn't you? So by all means, listen, if you're a son of God, a child of God, you remember that glorious truth. And then you come and you ask the Father, okay, what is it you'd have me do? I'll do anything. (laughs) But listen, if you're not a child of God, your first duty is not law, but faith. Faith. That is, you must come to Christ who has done all the work for you, okay? So you cannot work your way to God. You can't do it. The Son of God, has come and done all the work for you. Being a Christian is coming to Christ and saying, the work that you did, the life that you lived, the perfection that you set, the punishment that you endured, I want that to count for me. And he says, great. That's what it means to be a Christian. His life, his death, his resurrection, his future, you say, I want that to be mine. I I give up. I give up any chance I have to work my way to you. I see that Christ has done the work for me. Make that my faith. And he says, okay. You must claim God as your father through Christ before you try to obey him, okay? If that's you, if you have questions about what what it means to do that, please come, come talk to me. Talk to anybody you've seen up here. Love to talk through that. Come to the father through the son. Claim life in him. And what you find is that obedience then, it's a delight. You know, I think there's a way that we can tease this out as those who do believe in Christ, right? So, so think about your own life, right? So are there, any, are there any particular areas of life where you're finding it particularly difficult to obey God? So I'm assuming you're a Christian with this application. So are there, just, are there certain things that you know that God is calling to you, you to leave behind, right? You see it in his word, but you just can't, right? Any sins that you know that don't honor him, but they're just too sweet? Any temptations that you would do anything not to give into again, but you just can't quit? Let me ask you, so if you're being honest, if you're being honest, are you fighting that sin out of the power of the knowledge of God's love for you or out of an attempt to get God to love you. So, in other words, would it change things in your fight against sin if you were seeking to obey God because you know that he loves you rather than trying to make him love you? So what if, in other words, what if right at the moment of temptation, your thinking was not, come on, you can fight this. Like if you, if you don't do that, if you don't want God to hate you, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. What if instead of that, what if, what if the gospel you told yourself was, 
God loves you. God loves you. There's this sin, but God loves you. You've, you've seen that love on the cross. He accepts you. You don't need that sin. My sense is that most of us fight temptation thinking that we're earning God's love in the process. And what I'm telling you, Christian, is that you already have God's love. We might be scared of that reasoning and fight sin, but I would just commend it to you. Try it this week. Try to fight temptation with the gospel, not with the law, and see how it goes with you. Knowing that you're accepted, not trying to be accepted. You have God as your father. Now you get to obey him. And when we do this, when we obey in light of what he's done, then what happens is as we obey, we're assuring our hearts and our consciences that we actually are walking by faith into the answer to the final foundational question that I see answered in these verses. So number three, I don't think number two is shorter than the first one. I apologize for that, okay? Sorry. Number two, I think this one is shorter. What, what has God planned for us? What has God planned for us? Look at verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So verses 5 and 6 they shed some light on what's really happening here at Mount Sinai. Why is the Lord speaking to the people through Moses? He's making a covenant with them. You see that in verse 5? Which means is that in a very real way, what we're witnessing here is like a marriage ceremony, a wedding ceremony. So we have one party, the Lord, confessing his undying love and commitment to another party, Israel, in front of a witness, that is through Moses. In Exodus, the Lord God pursues and rescues people, a people, to bring her to himself. And in chapter 19, he declares his love and intentions for her. Once again, God rescues his people in order to have a relationship with them. That's what he's sealing here, once again in verse 19. In Exodus, Israel is finding out her true identity, in case she had any question of it. And get this, her identity is defined by her relationship with the one true God. You see that? And so if that's how we look at it, then who exactly is Israel? What is Israel finding out in Exodus 19? Verse 5, she is Yahweh's treasured possession. Deuteronomy 32, did, did you catch that earlier? She is the apple of his eye. Who is Israel? The Lord loves her. That's who she is. Who is God? I am. Who is God's people? I am loves you. Is that how you view the Lord? As a lover of people? As a faithful, caring, committed husband? Because that's how he reveals himself in scripture. The Lord loves the bride whom he's chosen. And he shows this love by rescuing her out of the bondage of slavery. And having rescued her, 
What does the Lord have planned for her now? You see that? Verse 6. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So what is God's intention here? His intention is to enter this fallen world, a a world full of sin-sick, God-hating people, and to draw out people who belong to him, to belong to him, who who will be people that people were created to be. That is, they will be worshipers. His his intention, he says, is that a whole kingdom of priests. You see that? A priest is simply someone who confidently draws near to worship God. And and what he's saying is he wants a whole kingdom of that. Notice later on, notice later on in Exodus, do we get a kingdom of priests or a kingdom with priests? Israel is a kingdom later on with priests. Not all of them are representative, are covered in the holiness that they need to be covered in order to draw near to God. But that's what God's going after. He wants a whole kingdom of people who draw near and worship him. His intention is to create a people unlike any other people in the world. He says, one holy nation out of all these other unholy nations. His intention for his bride is to, as Ephesians 5 says, to wash her in the water of his word, to sanctify her, to cleanse her, to cast her in a beauty that she could never conjure up on her own. So big picture, the story of the Bible, it's a story of a holy world falling into the corruption of sin. And then a holy God entering into that world to redeem people out of it, to set them apart for holiness, getting rid of everything else unholy. This is what God has planned for Israel. So we're going to trace this out to see how this plays out, how they respond. And we can see really clearly that in light of the gospel, this is actually what God has planned for us too. We read this earlier, 1 Peter chapter 2. Look at verses 9 and 10. How does Peter address the people of God after the coming of Christ? You, he says, church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Sound familiar? A people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Titus, Paul says it differently in Titus chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. He says, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ gave himself for us, why? To redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. God is making a people unlike any other, calling them out of the world to himself. And maybe you're thinking, okay, well, Well, that's great to know, but it certainly doesn't feel like the reality that I'm living in at present, right? Have you seen the world lately? It doesn't actually feel like a blessed thing to be set apart in this world. Actually, to be set apart and belong to Christ, sometimes it actually makes it much harder in this world. And I think the Bible would say, well, of course, the kingdom of God is not yet established in the world here and now. The Bible says we live in a present evil age. The priests don't yet reign with Christ as they will. Right now, God's enemies are the ones with place and power, but that's changing soon. 
We've been in Exodus. We've been in Psalms. We've been in the gospel. We've been in the epistles. What if you fast forward all the way to the end? What does the end look like? And I'll just encourage you with this, Christian, as we close. When you get to the end, when you get to the glimpse of the revelation of the end, what do we see? Revelation 1. John starts off with this doxology to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom, priests to God, excuse me, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Revelation 5, verse 8. We sang about this earlier. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's what he's done. Why? And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is what the Lord has done. He is making, right now he's making, he's committed to making us into a kingdom of priests. We will one day reign with Christ on the earth. Right now it's preparation time, but that's what's coming. The great act for which Jesus Christ will be worshipped forever is that he set aside his heavenly place, took on flesh, showed his love for his bride by laying down his life for hers, and her great glory, our great glory, is that she has been made holy, an entire kingdom of priests who will reign forever with her groom. What has God done for you, Christian? What does he require of you? What does he have planned for you? You know, these are good questions to contemplate, and they're questions that are answered in the Lord's Supper every week, aren't they? What has the Lord done for us? The broken body and the spilled blood. What does he require of us to come by faith? And what does he have planned for us? Well, we remember this by faith until we see it by sight. What is God doing in the world? Church, God is rescuing a people to have a relationship with them. What a privilege to be a part of it. Huh? Let's pray together. All blessing and honor and glory is yours, God. Lord Jesus, you, are, you alone are worthy to open the seal that reveals things that only God himself can reveal, and we worship you for that. We're so grateful to be your people. We're so grateful that you are our God. We pray all these things for your glory, for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.